Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. sharing the vision and, and values of Radiant Church, and um, we'll probably be talking about the vision and values of the church here until Christmas. And our hope in talking about the vision and values of Radiant Church is to clearly mark the front of the bus so that you know what you're getting into. Not only will you know where we're going, uh, but w- you'll also know how we intend to get there and how we intend to drive so that you're not caught you know, halfway down the road going, what the heck, I didn't sign up for this. We want to be really clear, mark the front of the bus, tell you what we're up to. Um, and, and so, not, not just so that you can know, but that so that you can participate with us in what we feel like um, is a God-given mission for our church. So, we want to behold Jesus, we want to see Him, look to Him, gaze at Jesus. We want to put His brilliance on display. We want to do that by living lives that are obedient to His Word, surrendered to His Spirit, devoted to His mission. And so that, or in order that, or we believe that the result of that will be uh, the lost being found. Uh, Prodigals returning home, disciples being made, and churches being planted. It's what we're excited about. And so we've been talking for the last few weeks, and we've not moved past being obedient. We're still talking about being obedient <laughs> to His Word. So, um, we, we really, we really want to walk this out. Uh, we don't want to just talk about it. Um, we want to we wanna actually walk the walk. And so, in an attempt to help you walk this out, or in an attempt to help you understand that this mission statement for us is more than words that we actually want to do this stuff. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Um, We actually want to walk these words out. We went ahead and printed the mission statement on socks. (laughs) So you can buy a pair of socks for five bucks. The money will go towards ministry. And we're hoping to get this to stick. Uh, We want you at the end of these ten weeks to be able to say, this is what we're doing at Radiant. And we're serious about it. We're going to walk it out. (laughs) Yeah. Special thanks to Mike Fishback who screened socks. So there are there are many things that result or come from a life that's obedient to God's Word. Many things that come uh, from being doers of the Word and not just hearers and and actually um, applying what we know Jesus has asked us to do. There's there's many things that come uh, from a life that's obedient to the Word, but there's two things that we especially value here. That's not to say that we don't value those other things, but we especially value these two things. One is authenticity, which we talked about last week. 
Uh, we, we value authenticity. We celebrate it. We love it when people don't just know the truth, but are true to the truth that they know. And we defined authentic, authenticity last week as just being willing to admit how inauthentic you are. If you want to be authentic, you can just start by confessing what a fake and what a fraud you can be. So that's it. That, that's it. If you can do that, then you can be authentic. And so we celebrate that when people are honest, when people decide to confess what's really going on and not conceal what's really going on and, and hide. And so last week there was a charge, you know, um, given hopefully not just from me, but from Proverbs that talked about how it's not wise to conceal your sin and it will work out for you if you confess and renounce you'll find mercy. And so the charge was, you know, or the question was, are you concealing what's really going on for you or are you confessing what's really going on for you? How many people left the service last Sunday and actually confessed something going on in your life? You decided not to conceal what's up any longer? Hands? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So this week we're actually going to talk about risk. Because risk is one of the things that comes when we're obedient to his word. And so some of you already participated in this. Maybe you can preach the sermon on risk because you know, you know that deciding to confess what's really going on rather than conceal uh, required you to risk. And risk is um, valuable. Valuable. It's a value for us. We stand it up and we celebrate it. We love it when people stake their lives on the faithfulness of God and choose to risk in courage rather than retreat in fear. We love it when people bank on the promises of God, count on His faithfulness, risk risk themselves, risk their lives, risk their money, risk their status, risk their reputation, whatever it is, risk their position, I don't, you can risk a lot of things, but we love it when people risk. And um, we, we celebrate stories where people go all in. I love hearing stories about people not holding back, but going all in and risking in a sort of sacrificial love. Not only is risk valuable, I think risk is right. Um, not only is risk valuable, I think risk is absolutely essential. I actually think that you cannot avoid it. We're trying desperately to avoid it, and I believe that we cannot avoid a life that is full of risk. The only way forward is to risk, and I'm not talking about, you know, risk for risk's sake, or risk so that, uh, you know, because we want to be heroes, or risk because we have some sort of lust for adventure. Um, I'm talking about risk... um, for the sake of God's cause. Um, We want to put the brilliance of Jesus on display, and what puts him on display is a life of costly love, which will require you to risk over and over again. And I know if you're anything like me, I don't enjoy risk. I'd prefer to stay comfortable love to play it safe. I prefer a sense of security and don't like to risk and to follow Jesus as Lord will require us to risk over and over again. There's 
No way of getting out of it. No way around it. So here's a definition of risk. I don't know what your relationship is to this word. Um, I don't know what comes up for you when I ask you to risk. But a risk is an action, something that we do that exposes us to the possibility of loss or injury. Um, If you take a risk, you know that you can, like I said, lose money. You can lose your health. You can actually lose your life because of a risk. But what's worse than losing your life, your money, your health, is that you can actually lose other people's money when you take a risk. You can lose other people's lives. Um, You can lose other people's health in taking a risk. So a question I was asking myself this week is, is it wise to risk? Will a loving person ever risk if it could potentially harm others? Can you risk by not taking risks was one of the questions I lived in. What do you risk when you don't take risks? Risk exists because ignorance exists. I don't know how long it's been since you've reflected on how little you know, but we know very little. I know that you're, you know, uh, you've got Google in your hand, but we know very little. Risk exists because ignorance exists. We're limited in what we know. We don't know the details of the next five minutes, let alone the details of the next five years. And because ignorance exists, that we don't know the future because we're limited, because we're finite. Risk exists. There's no way that we can avoid it. It's actually woven into the fabric of our lives. We're doing it all the time. You cannot avoid risk because of your ignorance. Sorry about that little jab. Every direction you turn, there are things that are out of your control. I encountered that this week as we were getting news about, you know, permits not going through. And I was actually in Colorado feeling somewhat helpless. I wasn't able to have the conversations or even be in the know of what was going on. Not that I could have solved the problem, but I would love to have been around. And you feel out of control. You feel pretty helpless uh, tomorrow's activities, what we're, what we're deciding, what we're planning on doing tomorrow, shattered by a thousand different unknowns. We don't know, and therefore we risk. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. Now, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Uh, I want to shatter, hopefully explode the myth of a risk-free life. You cannot avoid taking risks. Most of us are living as if this mirage of security is a reality. You don't have any security. 
even Jesus didn't promise us certainty. He promised us fidelity. It was actually certainty surrounding his fidelity, which was that he was going to be loyal to us, right? That he would never leave us or forsake us. So that's the certain thing that you can count on is that he'll be with you. He didn't meet with his disciples and go, I'm sending you out. Okay, go into all the world, uh, make disciples. It's probably going to go like this. And then when this happens, you need to do this. No, he didn't actually promise them certain uh, circumstances. He actually promised them his fidelity. He said, I will be with you. That's what you can be certain of. I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. So, most of us are in pursuit of, of risk-free living. And our desire for control, our longing for security runs deep. We use all kinds of things to secure ourselves. We, use all, we employ all kinds of things to try to get control, right? This longing for security runs deep in us. We talked about it last week that for most of us, Life is really about looking good, being right, and staying comfortable. If we can stay comfortable, then, then we've done it. Because this, this desire, this longing for security, this longing for control, this longing to know what's coming, um, it, 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 we desire it. Think about it. Marketing companies know this about us, and so they market to you based on your longings and desires, and they offer you a no-risk guarantee. And you scoop up the product. Because any commitment is a risk, right? Uh, Mike uh, got a new guitar for his 30th birthday. Uh, a group of friends pitched in to buy him a guitar. I was in charge of picking out the guitar, which is um, that's intimate. You know, that, that's like, you don't do that for another guy. And so I felt nervous. I, I just felt like, oh man, I hope Mike likes this. I hope this is the one. I mean, I, I really agonized over it, made a lot of different phone calls, consulted a lot of different people for fear that I would make a mistake and Mike wouldn't like this guitar that we bought for him. And as I'm going back and forth wondering if this is the one, the guy from Guitar Center comes out and he said, well, you can bring it back in the next 30 days for no reason. And I was like, sold. <laughs> I'll take it. Because now all of a sudden the, the commitment, you know, the risk doesn't seem as high, you know. Obviously, for many, uh, the insurance world is, is big business because what we want is certainty. What we want is control. And, uh, and, and, and insurance provides us some sense of security even when we feel out of control. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can buy insurance to help us know that when something that we don't know is going to happen, happens, that we're set, that we're set up, that we can be covered. And that's big business because our longing for control, our desire for certainty uh, runs uh, deep. So people, you know, get a sense of security and a sense of peace from all kinds of things. We get it from money. We get it from relationships. We get it from religion. Our religion is our attempt to appease and manipulate God. That's what religion is. 
It's, a, it's, it's us wanting to get what we want by appeasing or manipulating God or the gods. And the gospel, Christianity, is very different than most religions because what the gospel says is that God is completely satisfied and is the committed initiator of relationship. So we don't have to do a rain dance to get something from him. We can't appease or manipulate him. We can't control him. Religion puts us in the driver's seat where we control what God does because we're doing it right or not doing it right. The result of religion is pride or, or despair. Either you're doing it or you're not. The gospel is very different. It's about a God who's satisfied, the committed initiator of relationships, so we don't have to manipulate him with rituals or other you know, song and dance. We can't twist his arm. He was already about it. So, um, Jesus' invitation, you've heard his invitation before, to deny yourself and to lose your life for his sake flies in the face of everything we've been programmed to do. We're programmed for survival. We're programmed to pursue security. We want control. And this flies in the face. This call to lose our lives, to follow Him, to trust Him, flies in the face of everything that we're programmed to do. I spent time thinking this week, not, not just about following Jesus and, and the invitation that He's given us, but I was, just, I was thinking about Christianity. I, w- I was thinking specifically about the Bible. And the majority of this Bible was written by people facing significant danger and chaos. This is a messy, messy book. Way messier than our church together, you know, on on Sunday mornings. This is a messy, messy book. This is written by a group of people facing danger, facing chaos. The Old Testament deals with Israel, right? The nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Of God and the people of God are what? They're always under attack. They're always under threat. They're always under oppression. They're always under exile. They're always the underdog. Always, always facing threats. Always living in chaos. Wars, famines, floods, empires. You know, rising, falling, it's just a mess. And here's what's interesting, is that Christianity thrives in chaos. It seems that the worst time for the people of God is when there is some sense of stability. They forget Him. When things are going well, it's not going good, so it seems to be always going bad in this book. When things are going well, they forget God and they do what they think they should do. So it's always a little bit crazy. It's always chaotic. We get to the New Testament, and the New Testament's written by a bunch of adventurer missionaries. You know the guy, because you've been in church before, and the missionary shows up, and he starts telling you crazy stories, you know, about how we, you know, broke down here, or almost died there, or went off a cliff here or peed in that, or had to sleep there. You know, those type stories, they were adventure missionaries who wrote 
the New Testament. Sometimes, and I, I don't know if this is because of what my week looks like, but sometimes when I think about Paul, you know, he, he did not write these letters in the New Testament from like a library. He wasn't, you know, pondering the things of God while smoking a pipe. You know, he didn't have a sweater on with elbow pads, you know. That's not where he wrote. Your Bible was written from prison. Your Bible was written from prison. Christianity thrives when it's threatened. And it dies when we have security. We forget him. Christian history is full of men and women who decided to risk in courage rather than retreat in fear. Full. Full of men and women who chose to risk. They were facing danger, facing chaos. They didn't know if they were going to live or die. And they continued, um, they continued to do what they felt God had asked them to do. Um, I'll, I'll start by reading this scripture from Hebrews. Um, you know, the church here that Paul's writing to is, is wanting to give up. They're facing persecution. Things just got real. Most of them are like, I did not sign up for this. It was going well for a while, and now Jesus is gone, and we're losing our possessions. This is rough. This is very uh, difficult. This church is wanting to throw in the towel, and so um, the book of Hebrews is an encouragement to continue, to not quit, to persevere. So I want to read to you some of, of Paul's charge to this church. I don't know if you're in that place of like, what am I even doing this for? It seems like there's no victory. I don't know if this is working out. Just following Jesus is not all that it was cracked up to be. Being a part of a church is not all that it was cracked up to be. You know, I don't know where you're at, but this church was there. Wanting to throw in the towel. We're done. This is what Paul says. Hey, remember the earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Remember, you guys have done this. Sometimes you guys were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we... Do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is Paul's version of, that's not what we do in this family. I don't know if you've had that conversation with your kids yet, who are like, I'm not so into soccer, and the coach isn't even playing me, and I'm going to quit. And you've had to come to your kid and say, that's not what we do in this family. We don't quit. 
You signed up for soccer. I bought those shin guards. We bought you cleats. And darn it, you're going to play soccer. That's not what we do in this family. That's not what we're about. Aiklands aren't quitters, and you're not going to quit, you know? You've probably had some form of this conversation. Well, this is Paul coming like, hey, look, we're not of those who shrink back. That's not what we do. That's not what we do. We are of those who believe and are saved. We persevere. You've done it. You can do it again. We're not of those who shrink back and try to save their lives. We're of those who follow Jesus and lose their lives for his sake. That's who we are in this family. That's what we do. That's what we're about in this family. Radiant Church, that's what we're about in this family. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're of those who believe and are saved. This is the legacy we have. This is the heritage that we have as Christians. I want to tell you some family stories. These are our stories. We've been grafted in. We're a part of this family. I want to tell you some family stories because we're not of those who shrink back. That's not what we do. That's not what we've been shown, and that's not the Jesus that we serve. For the joy set before him, he endured terrible, terrible things for us. And a great, wonderful display of sacrificial love. Abraham, the father of the faith. The father of the faith who has become for us a model of what it looks like to live a life of faith. He gets this call. In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, uh, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Some mysterious deity comes to him and says, leave everything you know, leave everything you're comfortable with, don't worry about where you're going, I'll show you. This is like my conversation with Avery, get dressed, we're leaving, where are we going? Doesn't matter, what I said was, get dressed, we're leaving. How will I know what to dress in if I don't know where we're going? Get dressed, we're leaving. Well, where are we going? Don't worry about it. Get dressed. I got this. Like, can you imagine? I mean, if I was Abraham, I would have held out for more details. Go to the land I will show you. Leave everything that's comfortable. Leave everything you know. Walk off your mat. And don't worry, I'll show you another one. Come on, man. He responds in an act of obedience. Insane risk. We know how the story ends. He didn't. He didn't know how the story ended, and he stepped out in this adventure, and he risked in obedience, leaving his comfort, leaving his community, right? And he didn't just put himself in danger, he took his family with him. His rather large family went with him on this uncertain journey. Joab. You can read about Joab in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 10, but uh, if you haven't heard of Joab, you probably have heard of King David. King David sends messengers to the Amalekites, and these messengers were supposed to bring condolences because the Amalekites just lost their king. So he says, hey, go over, tell them, you know, we're real sorry. So the messengers get there, and upon their arrival... The Amalekites go, these guys aren't coming to offer condolences. They're not here with a bouquet of flowers and a get well soon card. They're coming to spy this land out. 
And so this is what they do to David's messengers, to shame them. They cut off half their beards, and they pants them, and they send them back. So to shame these messengers, they cut their pants off and half their beards off and send them home. It's your Bible. You can read it for yourself. I believe the word they use is from the like buttocks down, which is totally embarrassing. I, I think it's worse. You know, it would probably be worse to go home with a top on and no bottoms. I don't know why that's worse, but it's embarrassing. So they send them home. You can keep your shirt on, but your pants are off, and we're taking half your beard. Head home. They get back, and David's just furious. Right? Are you serious? We went to send condolences, and you send my messengers back with half a beard and no pants on. That's it, right? So the Amalekites find out that David's really upset. And they're like, oh no, David's coming for us. So they hire a Syrian army. And so Joab is the commander of Israel's army. And he sets out to take on the Amalekites, but soon finds himself in a place where he's surrounded. On his right are the Amalekites, and on his left are the Syrians who were hired to fight for the Amalekites. So he was not planning on this. This is not what Joab was planning on. And so he talks to his brother and says, hey, look, you go this way. I'm going this way. They make a pact to each other saying, hey, if you get done with your side, why don't you come help me out on my side? And if I get done on my side, then I'll come help you on your side. How's it sound? Yeah, sounds good. And then this, this verse, verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 10, this is what comes. This is what Joab says. They're surrounded. They're facing something that they, they didn't think they were going to face. The army is much bigger than they thought it was going to be. And this is what Joab ends up saying. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. He has no promised word from the Lord, no special revelation. If you read your Old Testament, you'll find all kinds of battle stories where it's like, surely the Lord has handed them over to you. Or there's this promise of victory if the Lord's armies go out. Joab has none of that. He makes a decision based on his love for people and the cities of God. And he says, I'm going to risk it. I don't know. We're going to be courageous. We're going to go out and we'll leave uh, the results up to God. Can you imagine? Hey, bro, you go this way. I'll go this way. Be courageous. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. He didn't know how it would turn out. He didn't know how it would turn out. He, he hands the results over to God. If I had time, I'd talk to you about Esther. You probably know the story. The story of Esther is very similar to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is also an Old Testament story. Similar to the Esther story, but this one takes place while the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. So they've been hauled away from their home. And King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image of gold. And then he commands that when the trumpet sounds, everyone bows down, right, to this image. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the story. They're not, they're not going to bow. 
So the trumpet sounds and they don't bow. And so Nebuchadnezzar threatens them and says that if they refuse to worship the image, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And this is how they answer. This is, this is, this is so good. Nebuchadnezzar is telling them, he's threatening them, if you don't bow down to this, I will throw you in a fiery furnace. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And they go, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Silly Neb. (laughs) Oh, Neb. I mean, these guys don't give a crap, man. (laughs) You don't talk to Nebuchadnezzar like this. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't need to talk to you about this. Oh, my gosh. Man, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, and you want to throw us in the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You're not in control. You're not so sovereign. What king likes to hear that? Oh, king, you're not a king at all. You're a little man. (laughs) And if God intends to deliver us from this fiery furnace, he will. Little man. You know, I mean, it's just. (laughs) And then they go on. These guys are out of control. But if not, be it known to you, oh, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. <laughs> it's like, hey, look, Neb, uh, God, you know, the God we serve, he's able to deliver us. You're actually just a puppet. And even if he doesn't, I'm still not bowing down to that thing. Ooh. We refuse. He can deliver us, even if he doesn't deliver us. We don't know the outcome. He may, he may not. We're still not bowing down to that thing. It's like these guys have nothing to lose. If I burn, I burn. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the true revolutionary is the one who has nothing to lose. We fear risk because we don't want to lose. We're not thinking about what we can gain. We're thinking about what we stand to lose. These guys are acting like three guys who have nothing to lose. Reminds me of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Ryan Delmore, who leads worship here, um, he, he, he had his uh, fifth kid uh, two months ago. And I talked to him on the phone yesterday. And I said, hey, how's five? Because Tiffany and I are a few months away from having uh, five little girls. And so I said, hey, how's five, man? Are you all right? Hey, Ryan. I mean, it's like, I need to know. Like, what's, what's five have to offer me? And he goes, oh, it's fine, man. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, you can't kill a dead man. (laughs) 
I mean, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're like, if I burn, I burn. You can't kill a dead man. Like, the true revolutionary is the one who has nothing to lose. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul, the great missionary, the great church planter, the great missionary who would travel to your church and tell these wild stories. In 2 Corinthians 11, I think sometimes we think, oh man, I, I wish I could see the things that Paul saw. I wish I could see God do these great things like Paul saw these God do. You don't want Paul's life. You know. Read, read the rest of the book. 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That's my favorite part. I don't know why. I'm just floating somewhere. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is quite literally like taking a beating. And let me just tell you that his ministry does not appear to be succeeding. Churches are going south, left and right. I mean, I, I, when I get the feeling when I read 2 Timothy, which is kind of like a deathbed conversation with Paul, I get the feeling like he fears that maybe this whole thing is over. He's got no friends. Everyone's abandoned him except for Timothy. And he's freaking out about the future of this Christian movement, this fledgling movement, wondering, will this thing make it out of infancy? I get that feeling. I don't think he was swimming in some sort of confidence. And aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that he persevered? Aren't we glad that after getting his back laid open once, he went back for more? It didn't stop him from preaching. 39 lashes on your back would lay your back completely open. Right about the time it healed, he would get it laid open again. Right about the time it just healed back again and was still tender, laid open again. Five times getting his back completely laid open. Shipwrecked, in danger everywhere he went. Not because he had a thriving ministry. It was not thriving. I mean, he probably thought, I don't know if this thing's going to make it or not. And here we are. Here we are. Thousands of years later. 2.2 billion people following Jesus because this man took risks and didn't bow to the God of comfort. I'm going again. I mean, honestly, if my back was laid open, I would feel ju totally justified. Like, I did my duty. I served my sentence. I'm not going back out to preach again. That's crazy. And he keeps going, keeps enduring, keeps risking for the sake of the gospel. Because again, here's the comment from, he, I mean, at some point he's like, hey, to die would be awesome. 
I would rather die. But for whatever reason, it's good for you that I be here. But I wish that I was dead right now. I'm tired of getting beaten half to death. Somebody beat me to death right now because I'm done. And he keeps pursuing. He keeps risking. He keeps enduring. Can I ask you a question? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip a few stories in our family storybook. I, I'd love it if you would read about the children of Israel and their decision not to risk in Exodus 13 when they decide not to go into the promised land because the cost of them not risking was 40 years in the desert and a generation lost. You risk something when you don't risk. And if you want, you can read about the end of Paul's life in Acts 21. Because again, here's the comment. He knows that it's not going to go well for him. And this is what he says. Let the will of the Lord be done. He knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for him. Everyone at the church is telling him, don't go. And he says, let the will of the Lord be done. The question I would like to end our time with uh, together, the, the question that I want to ask you, because I think you know that the call to follow Christ is not a call to a comfortable life, or I hope you know that the call to follow Christ is not a call to a comfortable life, and I think you, I think you realize today that I'm asking you uh, to live a life of risk, and I'm asking you to embrace discomfort, discomfort, to embrace discomfort. And so the question I just want to ask as we end is, is comfort your king or is Christ your king? Is comfort king or is Christ your king? Does Christ determine your steps or does comfort, does the lane of least resistance determine your steps? Or are you saving your life or is Jesus saving your life? Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and then others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Okay, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him in this, this rare moment of brilliance for Peter. You're the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, how short-lived was that? Peter was on, on point, and now he's getting rebuked. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want you to notice three things in here as we close. The call to discomfort. I don't know if you saw the call to discomfort, but it's there. I want you to see the promise within discomfort for us as a church. And I I want you to also notice the engine for discomfort. So the call to discomfort, you know that leading up to this passage, it's all high times. Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all of it about Jesus as king And he is exercising dominion over everything. Demons, sickness, the weather. The whole idea is that Jesus is king. He's sovereign. He's victorious. And if you would have asked one of those disciples, what is it like to be a Christian? They would have been like, this is amazing. Who wouldn't want to do this? We're winning. We're winning. It was victory. It was all glory stories. And then... There's this turning point in Mark chapter 8. Because it's not all about victory. And Jesus was about to bring about his ultimate victory through suffering. And the disciples are struggling to understand this, just like we struggle to understand this, right? So he's walking along with these guys. And he says, who do, who, who do people say that I am? Okay, and then, and then who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. And Jesus knew what Peter knew. Jesus knew what Peter meant by Christ. I mean, when when a first century Jew heard this word Christ, we're exposed to it often. When they heard this word, I think they're thinking liberation. I mean, they're, they're thinking finally victory. They're thinking about triumph. They're thinking about finally getting out from underneath suffering. And so the light bulb goes on for Peter and he's like, you're the Christ. And I know what that means. More glory stories. More victory. And Jesus takes him aside and he actually says, no, 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 Peter. Suffering. I'll bring about my victory through suffering. And he says it to him plainly. And he says it to us plainly. And for whatever reason, I just don't get it. No matter how many times he says it. And then Peter, Peter's like, oh, shh, shh. No, 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 no. We've been waiting too long to get out from underneath suffering. Okay, this is about liberating. This is about victory. This is about finally being on top. Okay, stop, talk, shh, shh, stop talking like this. You know, Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God, Peter. You're thinking about the things of man. You're taking a man's approach to this whole deal. Christ does not equal comfort in this life. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting them on the things of man. And then this is interesting because it's like he says to the crowd, you want to know about the things of God. Peter, you're not thinking about the things of God, you're thinking about the things of man. You're thinking about this in a totally wrong way. 
And then he says, you want to know about the things of God? He gathers the crowd and he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He didn't bring them all together and say, you want to know about the things of God? Let me tell you about angels. You want to know about the things of God? Let me tell you about the wheel within the wheel within the wheel and Ezekiel. Let me tell you about the things of God. Let me tell you about the mysteries. You want to know about the things of God? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You'll find out about the things of God. You want to know about the things of God? Deny yourself. But there's also here a promise within discomfort. Do you see the promise within discomfort? The first part of the promise is a warning. For whoever would save his life will lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The first promise is a warning. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you don't risk, if you commit to save yourself, you will in the end lose. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you will save it. If you pour yourself out for me, and if I'm your king, not comfort, if comfort's not your king and I'm your king, you will save your life. If comfort becomes your king and you try to save your own life, you will lose it. You've seen this before, right? It's like Jesus is saying, if you'll come with me, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you come with me, there'll be discomfort. But if you stay close to me, you're going to find your life. I can't promise you that everything is going to be safe and secure. I can't promise you that you'll find life if you come with me. We've seen this before, right? We know this scene. This scene that Jesus lays out is in every movie you've ever seen, right? Where the hero is crouched behind a car, and he's just escaped, you know, uh, explosions and gunfire, and everything's going south. He, he, he escapes, he's crouched behind a car, and then he realizes, I have to go back in, right? And then, but, but here's what complicates this really creative plot, is that there's also a girl there who has fallen in love with the hero, right? And he says to her, I'm going back in. And she says, I'm going with you. And then he says, no, it's too dangerous. And then she says, I don't care, Jack. I'm going with you, right? (laughs) Or whatever. You've seen it. You've seen this, right? And it's like she realizes that she's going to have to risk it to follow him. There's there's explosions and there's gunfire and it will be uncomfortable. But she'll be with him. And this is the Christian life for us. This is our Christian walk. Not that you're the hero, it's that you're the bimbo next to Jesus. (laughs) You're... You're the girl. You're you're not the hero. He's going back in. But you're deciding. 
I'm going with you. I'm going to risk it. I'm going back into what could be risky. I'm going back into what could be not so secure. We could stay here behind the car. We could make a getaway, but we're going back in and I'm going with you. She follows him into the flame. She follows him into the explosion. If we're going to do this and we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to ignore the king of comfort. We're going to have to ignore the comfort God, the one that keeps reminding you to save your life. You heard from this God before? Asking you to bow, asking you to yield, asking to determine your steps, asking you, hey, hey, don't, don't speak up. Don't, don't let him know you're a Christian. Just, just save your life and save your standing with this group of friends. This God of comfort that says, hey, um, yeah, actually don't give. Save your money. You don't know what's headed. You know, and, and by the way, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, uh, uh, you know. The comfort God that says don't uh, sign up. Save your time. Save your energy for you. Who's, who's really looking out for you? Oprah says to look out for you. The comfort God that says, don't open up, you'll be rejected. The comfort God that says, don't reach out, it's not going to help anyone anyway. The comfort God that says, no, 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 don't take responsibility, that's somebody else's job. The comfort God that comes to us and and just simply says, don't care. Don't care, because then it's going to get messy. Listen, if you ignore the comfort God and you lose your life, you will find it. Here's the engine for discomfort. Here's what fuels us. Here's how we live this life. Because success can't drive us because we're not promised success in every risk that we take for Jesus. It's not about success. At least short-term success. There are many graves in Africa. There are many graves in Asia from missionaries who didn't even make it onto the mission field. We're not guaranteed success in the short term with every risk that we take for God. But our our fuel for living this type of life is that this life is not all there is. That this life is, as James said, just a mist. That this life is not all there is for us. That what we do in this life echoes into eternity. This is what Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and the holy angels. This isn't it, our fuel to live a life of discomfort, the engine that drives us to live a life of discomfort, the engine that drives us to follow Jesus, to lose our life, is that this life is not all there is. We are promised long-term success, but not short-term success. We tend to relate to life like it's some sort of like shopping spree. You remember it was, uh, I think it was, it seemed pretty common in the 80s in a game show to win a shopping spree. And what you had was a couple minutes in a store to get as much in that cart as you could because that's all you had. And most Christians are living our lives like that. 
pushing the cart through the aisles, trying to load up on as much as we can because we think that this life is all there is. And Paul says to the church, this is not a shopping spree. This is not all there is. This is a race. And you don't want to be bogged down with that stuff if you're racing. This is not a shopping spree. This is not an opportunity to accumulate as much as you can in the short amount of time that we have here. This is a race, and you're supposed to throw off everything that hinders. This is the engine to live a life where we are losing our life, is that this life is not all there is for us. Would you stand with me? couple quotes from the family. A German pastor who lost his life opposing Nazi Germany wrote this, to procrastinate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Soren Kierkegaard says, To dare is to lose one's footing momentarily. To not dare is to lose oneself. Oswald Chambers. A great deal more failure is the result of an excess of caution than of bold experimentation with new ideas. The frontiers of the kingdom of God were never advanced by men and women of caution. Jim Elliott, who lost his life on the mission field, famously says this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I want to ask that you'd give us boldness right now. Boldness. When you came and baptized people, they got so bold. They were cowering in fear, and then they became these courageous leaders in your church. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would baptize us, that you would strengthen us on the inside to bear witness to what Jesus has done we just want to stand together as a church and renounce this God of comfort. Yes. The one who keeps telling us to save our lives. The one who keeps telling us to look out for ourselves. And we want to follow you and walk into the invitation that you've set before us, Jesus, to lose our lives for your sake. I pray for Joabs in this room. Raise up Men in this church who are going to fight, who are going to fight for the people, who are going to fight for cities, who are going to fight for families, and who are going to trust you with the outcome. That what they're going to be is courageous. What they're going to do is engage, and they're going to trust you for the results. I pray for Esthers in this church, women who would stand up and say, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. But I'm going to risk for my people. I'm going to risk in sacrificial love. 
Help us, Holy Spirit, to do what Jesus asked us to do. And I just want to, I just want to say over you, over you, church, over your hearts, over your fears, over your desires, that He who called you is faithful. He who called you is faithful. He who called you is faithful. Thank you for making a, us a part of this family. Uh, we want to continue in this heritage of, of being men and women who risk, men and women who adventure, men and women who follow. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city that I'm compelled to find. Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life I'm a pilgrim here on the side of the grave